Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and graze while we cultivate weird and wonderful science in your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition in the second part of my interview with Professor Johannes Lukutra, he talks about using biology to create new ways of growing food. But first up, here's news of worm food for longer life. Wormwood for worms. Researchers at the Louisiana State University Department of Biological Sciences, led by assistant professor Adam Bonnert, have found that feeding Artemisia scoparia leaf extract to adolescent roundworms helped them live 40% longer, and also made them fatter. Feeding them leaf extract in middle age caused them to live 20% longer. The worms were more easily able to turn unhealthy saturated fat into healthy unsaturated fat. The worms became healthier and handled stress better. When the ability to store unsaturated fat was blocked, the worms eating the wormwood extract did not live longer, demonstrating that this is a key factor in how the treatment adds life. Fat molecules, scientifically known as fatty acids, are essential components and regulators of cellular design, homeostasis and signalling in biological systems. Diets rich in unsaturated fat can improve metabolic health and lifespan in animal models. Techniques that stimulate bodies to make unsaturated fatty acids or prevent their breakdown can also extend life. Finding therapies that increase the accumulation of good fats might pave the path for new anti-aging medicines. The roundworm, Canorhabditis elegans, normally only lives three weeks, so we don't have to wait too long to see if they live longer than usual. The team fed an extract made from the leaves of the wormwood tree Artemisia scoparia, which is used in traditional medicine for liver diseases, inflammatory conditions, and infections, fever, pain, cancer, and diabetes. The study adds to previous work by assistant professor Bonnert and assistant professor Alyssa Johnson on ways dietary changes influence aging at a cellular level. It now appears Artemisia scoparia can activate many life-lengthening pathways in the body by switching on multiple genes involved in regulating lifespan and aging. Artemisia scoparia is available online as a traditional herbal supplement, but you might want to wait for clinical trials to find out what's the best dose for humans to get the best effect, rather than taking too little or too much to live longer. You may also have to be prepared to put on extra fat and have to explain to your doctor why it's healthy fat. The researchers say there's good reason to assume the results could be replicated in people as a study builds on their previous work on metabolic health in mice. It's worth noting that this is more scientific evidence that extra fat in old age 
can be a healthy thing. We really need to take age into account when calculating body mass index, BMI. But currently, we advise everyone to aim for the healthy weight of an 18-year-old, regardless of their current age. In traditional Chinese medicine, Artemisia scoparia is called Yin Chen. Its common English name is capillary wormwood. Common wormwood, Artemisia absinthium, is used as an ingredient in the alcoholic beverage absinthe. It's moderately poisonous, and so it was not included in the study. The paper was titled, A Fat-Promoting Botanical Extract from Artemisia scoparia Exerts Duroprotective Effects on Canorhabditis Elegans Lifespan and Stress Resistance, and was published in the journals of Gerontology. Listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. On the farm today, wherever you look, you see the handiwork of scientists. Improved crops, more productive soils, more useful, more efficient machinery. The stringless string bean has more snap. Through imagination and hard-won knowledge, through science and technology, agriculture works newer and newer miracles. Today's parade of improved crops is sometimes taken for granted. Plant research has bred into them special qualities for fresh use, freezing, and canning. Marketing research has improved methods of handling and storing. Meet some of the cooks you hire when you buy convenience foods. These women are checking fresh potatoes before making them into instant mashed. The work goes on in large plants of the United States and Canada, where millions of bushels are processed. This new use gives the potato farmer greater stability for his crop. After being cooked, Potatoes are dried and rolled into tissue-thin, dehydrated sheets. These are broken into flakes or granules of standard quality, texture, color, and taste. Packaged instant potatoes give the housewife a new convenience. This shelf item will save her 23 minutes of cooking time. Scientists are also working on such things as a powdered whole milk that dissolves instantly in cold water and tastes like fresh milk. What's more, they are studying the best ways to package and market this product. Among the many valuable new products created in agricultural laboratories are man-made vitamins, films and fibers from high amylose starch, mass-produced antibiotics, and the blood plasma extender Dextran, made from sugar. While scientists conduct research in new uses for farm crops, They also try to improve those products already in use. From cotton, H-fiber, science has given us the miracles of wash and wear fashions. Cotton fabrics with permanent pleats and clothes that resist wrinkles. Treatments have been developed for wool garments to keep them from shrinking when washed. 
Thus, agricultural research in colleges, industry, and government goes forward. Result? New products, new businesses, more jobs. The Science of Life, Part 2. Johannes Lukutra is Professor at the School of Chemical Engineering at the University of New South Wales. He spoke at the Frontiers of Science Forum about how biology became creative engineering, and specifically about growing food in new ways, cell by cell. I spoke with Johannes by Zoom, and I continued by asking him, I've read that some companies are using 3D printing techniques to lay down different textures in the cultured meat that they're putting out. So there's like fat layers and muscle layers and different things to try and improve the flavor and change the texture so it's not just like a sausage or a mince. Absolutely. And 3D printing is very exciting, uh, no question. And we are aware of these things. We, we are, to some extent, looking at these things. And again, the big problem, as I've mentioned already, is scaling and is the production of big amounts of biomass. 3D printing would be the next step where you then put in this biomass in order to generate structure and, and dimensionality and texture. Every step in, in an industry or in a production process, every additional step always costs money. And so printing right now seems to impart a, a big hurdle, a big cost hurdle. It's also very slow. If growing of the cells is not slow enough already, if you then have to, have to use that material and print it. But it's very exciting, without a doubt. We, we are also looking into this, and, and the technology of, of 3D printing is just about to start, clearly. And the plant-based substitutes for meat are getting quite impressive as well. I tried one of those Impossible Burgers a few weeks ago, and it was very tasty which surprised me enormously. So I know there's a lot more processing going on with the plant-based ones. Could they be as nutritious or are they more just to be nice to eat? I will not argue against plant-based. Plant-based has a role to play and plant-based is important. What you can say though is on a very fact-based observational point, plant cells are huge are filled with water, are surrounded by a cell wall, and have one genome each. Now, animal-based cells are much, much smaller, and still each and every cell has a genome. They are much more tightly packed with material. There is per volume unit less water. It's more dense in, in nutrients, and that's just the way it is. There is nothing more to say. So if you take a good vegetable, you turn it into a sausage or sausage appearance, that's all fine, but you don't have the same core material that you have from, it might even taste then. You might, you might actually destroy some of the goodness of the plant. Plants have a lot of fibers and are very important nutrients. Without a doubt, fruits and vegetables must be part of everybody's healthy diet. You can just ask yourself the question, is it really intelligent to take a plant and turn it into a sausage from all of the nutrient nutrition-based criteria? Again, in the markets, this is super successful because consumers, the, the taste, you can mimic the taste. 
and you, you, you arrive at, at products, as you say, that are convincing. Again, what's being done here, a lot of leguminose material is being used, soy and fabacee, that's the family of, of all those plants. These are, well, soy that comes in from areas where maybe deforestation is taking place to grow all of that soy, can be discussed and debated. But what I'm getting at is that it will always be very attractive and interesting and enticing to attempt the development of a process that produces real meat without an animal. And that's that's the whole thing of cellular agriculture, right? So that way you do produce those smaller nutrient-dense cells and you don't have to go the way of, of plant-based. And again, plant-based is absolutely is a step in the right direction. And I'm quite involved with a number of plant-based things. I think I even met one of the while he was still alive, one of the pioneers in, in this whole field, a gentleman called Gezi Kaplan in Israel, who in the 80s invented a lot of these things. And again, technology never stops and shouldn't stop. And the idea will be to just improve matters, right? So that's, that's I guess, what I'm getting at. Is there more scope for using mushroom and fungi? I've heard about people doing research where they're starting to use things like the chitin from some mushrooms in medical applications and totally different sorts of food applications from mushrooms that perhaps haven't been looked at as closely before. Is that something that could be part of cellular agriculture as well? Yes, yes. So fungi material is super uh, interesting. I'm not sure actually, do fungi produce chitin? I thought that's insects that come up, that have the chitin. Oh, I know that It came up recently in a news item. Okay. In any event, fungi material and, and the mycelia are definitely uh, very interesting materials. I'm not fully an expert in or a mycologist. I have a few mushroom friends and mycologist friends. It is definitely a super exciting. And at the end of the day, yeasts are mushrooms and fungi as well, right? So definitely there is a lot that can be done. And in the cellular agriculture domain, for example, it might be feasible to look at mycelial structures as scaffolding material for growing cells on it in order to impart texture and three-dimensionality. Yes, which reminds me, there was a story a few years ago now about people using plant material, like I think even an apple was being used as a scaffold for human cells to grow a prosthetic ear for example, to grow an ear replacement in the right shape by using the plants as a scaffold. Is that sort of technology the sort of thing that can go into the food science? Well, the cellular agriculture field emerges out of biomedical applications. Just keep in mind, and, and this always comes back to the scaling thing, if you grow a heart valve or an ear on the back of a mouse or somewhere, then you, first of all, can spend time and energy doing it. You can also charge thousands of dollars for doing this because somebody will have a new ear or somebody will have a new heart valve, which is for this person worthwhile, all of that money. When it comes to food, people need to always operate at the affordability 
levels they are used to and you need to produce biomass you need to you need to think and talk metric tons so that is where, where then the process that might work on a 10 gram piece of tissue needs to be modified adapted scaled and and really made suitable for for these big ticket applications so that might be more useful if it was from some sort of agricultural waste rather than fruit yeah absolutely so food waste or anything that again that is affordable clearly Clearly one thing I, i like to reiterate is the the necessity of scaling and then the whole point of of the cut Right now, we are limiting ourselves in this technology development toward mimicking the cut. The day, and that's, that's when the future really will start, the day we, let's fast forward 200 years from now, the day that eating a piece of meat, a cut, is not necessarily an experience present in everybody's mind, we don't need to then follow just this pattern of developing materials with marbling and stuff, we could possibly come up with things that go beyond cuts and marbles. We can introduce interesting nutrient proposals. We can go personal. We can think of having foods with amazing, interesting new tastes, maybe. We can have personalized foods that talk to prevention of cognitive decline to specific health benefits to all of these things we can have maybe yeah again foods that and meat based foods that have meat that taste not like meat and we can have foods that just look completely different than again this reddish piece of marbled meat that that we know coming out of an animal while i again want to make it very clear there will always be animal products they just should be treated better and should be coming in at a, at a higher cost point and should be more in agreement with the overall food systems that we're running on Earth. I will talk about this in, in my talk also, that mm. it is really increasingly becoming an issue of planetary health. Many of the of food systems simply don't fit any longer into our planet. We have either too many greenhouse gas emissions or we're having hotspots for viral outbreaks and we, we just have seen these things or we run into big deforestation campaigns that just don't make any sense. And so the planetary health and also the planetary economies need to be taken into account when we look at how we develop our food systems for the future. One of the other things I was looking at with uh, cellular agriculture course was also algae. I spoke to someone a few years ago who was looking at engineering algae to do all sorts of amazing things. Is that being applied? He, he was looking at producing, I think, oils for industry. Is that something that could go to food as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, again, it's about food systems. And I'm sure, Ian, you are aware of also the, the whole story with cows being major sources of methane emissions into the atmosphere. And what has been found, in my understanding, is that is coming out of Australia is that algae, there are seaweeds that significantly reduce the methane emissions of cows, which is interesting and, and then would contribute already to the food system. And then, yeah, of course, algae are a sizable amount or contribution to 
our food. So not only as a wrapping for your sushi, but beyond. And I think there is definitely also value to be added in, in the future. Yes, clearly. And I guess the other unconventional sorts of foods that have been proposed, they're not really in cellular agriculture. There's people talking about adapting insects into the food chain. Is that something that you look at or is that something totally separate to you? No, there is two approaches. There is either the way of eating the insect directly, and that's been done for a long time already, especially in Southeast Asian cuisines. And if you are, again, coming from a biological viewpoint, they are just like shrimps, right? Insects are arthropods and are very close. If you like shrimps, there is no reason not to like insects. Very clearly, you might uh, have to get used to the taste of chitin. And here's the chitin now with the insect. And it's something you, you can get familiarized with. You can put spices. You can definitely process this a little bit one, one way or another. That is one way where insects are being used. There is other approaches where, again, insects are being used as a easy-to-keep animal. Black soldier larvae and black soldier flies are being used to, to process food waste and to just turn that into useful materials that can be then again incorporated into the food system. People are working on that. So insects, again, do play a role. And sometimes speaking of insects, I have to say on, on a different level, I'm always not scared, but maybe a bit worried about the loss of insects that we are seeing outside. When I was young and would drive myself or with my parents through with a car, every hour or two you had to clean the windshield from dead insects. Now, this doesn't exist anymore. No insects are flying around any longer. So there is certainly an eye to be kept on insects, and, and they are also, again, important contributors to the balance in our ecosystems. And that's why we need biologists. We do, we do. So final question, if we've got students listening who want to know how to focus their studies to work in cellular agriculture in the future or to study it, should they go into a biology degree, uh, chemical engineering? What do you recommend? This is a very good question. This is a fantastic question. In, and, and what I can tell you here is, number one, I think they should always study biology with a view on engineering in their minds because we are at this tipping point right now. What I truly believe is that biology switched from a descriptive science into a creative science. Very important. And that's the difference between science and engineering, if you will. The thing is, at UNSW, we beefed up, we changed and we adapted our curriculum you will see a lot of biology and also a lot of food-based things in the engineering faculty, which is sort of following and building up exactly this mindset so that we teach students to learn, to, to admire the beauty and the opportunities in this field and to apply it to existing problems in the world. I think studying biology in an engineering mindset is exactly the way forward. And, and again, if I may... UNSW is, is the right place for doing this. Yes. Well, let me thank you. That would be my final word. I'm, I'm looking very forward to, to our event on March 25th at the golf course. And I'm certainly looking forward to seeing students grow in this domain. We are happy to welcome students. 
everybody's sort of suffering, I guess, still for a while from the aftermath of the of the pandemic. But as far as we are considered here at UNSW Chemical Engineering, we are embracing and looking forward to welcoming curious young minds with an interest in creating and shaping the future, very importantly. Well, Johannes Lukutra, thank you very much. Ian, that was, that was fun. Thank you so much. That was the second and final part of my interview with Professor Johannes Lukutra from the University of New South Wales, talking about how biology evolved to become engineering and how cellular agriculture can produce new foods to feed the world. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.